This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Player Planning! The Black Dahlia. Wayne's Cot Worlds on CCTV. And Moorish Sovereign Citizens versus Yig. Bobby would yell for seconds on fish and thirds. His mother said his big mouth would give him brain fever like his cousin Larry Marsh, and how would he like that? And Bobby said just fine, and his mother sent him to his room without any fish at all. Thus begins the strangely familiar, yet disturbingly alien, illustrated tale, Where the Deep Ones Are. It's part of Atlas Games' mini-mythos series, which also includes the delightful parodies, Cliff Howard, the Big Red God. Good Night Azathoth, and the Antarctic Express. All of them written by yours truly. Right now, and for a limited time, Atlas is offering a buy-two, get-one-free bundle of mini-mythos goodness. Which makes delightfully subversive gifts for friends, relatives, and especially their children. Leap online, Mythos fans! Point your browsers to atlas-games.com slash Cthulhu4kids. That's Cthulhu, the number four, and the word kids. Or follow the link in the show notes. That seems wise. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. But the miniatures are left still, as are the dice. The Doritos still get some action because everyone's (laughs) huddled around the graph paper trying to figure out the best way to begin getting in to the adventure. Rather than simply following the benevolent hand of the GM like a normal person, they're engaged in planning. Robin, planning. Threat or menace? Or is it core game fun? Right. So I I, I thought I would look at the issue uh, with you, Ken, today about... I guess the, the question hovering over all of this, as you suggest, is how much the GM should intervene uh, when there's a lot of planning going on. And this uh, is inspired by my recent play uh, with the Yellow King role-playing game. Uh, this is the big, new, uh, groovy super project that I've uh, begun work on for Pelgrane Press. We'll be kickstarting that uh, sometime in the indeterminate future. And one of the ideas behind the game is there's four separate settings or timelines in which your different characters encounter uh, the menace of the uh, Carcosa and the King in Yellow. And this particular one is called The Wars, and it's set in an imaginary war in an alternate timeline. And so, of course, the planning sequence is a staple of the war genre, where they pull out the map and uh, discuss what they're going to do next, or talk about whether they should take this hill or that hill, or how they're going to wage an attack and uh, in narrative, that kind of sets up the uh, situation so that you can understand and follow up. And, of course, in a role-playing game, any kind of planning is about giving the players agency and a group cooperation exercise in which everyone uh, sort of comes at things from different angles and they all agree to do something. Now, I think if you're thinking of it as a menace, you can hit a session where 
there's just a lot of planning. The planning sequence takes uh, two hours or three hours takes most of the session. And so uh, the question that I want to put forward here then is when is that good? When is that giving the players all sorts of time to do things and interact and, and uh, engage with the setting and engage with the setting? And when is that going to leave them at the, in, instead at the end going, oh, well, we didn't really do anything tonight. We just talked for three hours about what we're going to do, and then we ran out of time. So how do you, as a GM, distinguish engaged play from uh, something that is, is going to be disappointing in, in retrospect? Well, I, by and large, have engaged players or self-engaged players, meaning that if they are interested in the in the setting and the and the story that I've presented, which is most of the time because they're they're good people, uh, they will respond to it and they'll respond to it in ways that might strike other game groups as overly cerebral, perhaps, or time insensitive, maybe even. <laughs> and but that is them engaging it because most of them are University of Chicago graduates, God save the mark, and so therefore that's how we do things fun in Hyde Park. Underneath the snowdrifts, we sit with our copies of Plato and tease out higher meaning. Same basic thing with a orc compound or Nazi dirigible that needs to be taken down. So the the process of engagement and planning often it creates a little minor uh, moment of of die rolling where they have to decide is such a thing possible or can they get such and such a piece of information or such and such a piece of equipment or sometimes it produces and this is not even sometimes this is a lot of times it produces richer more exciting more fun involving play than the play that I had anticipated they were going to do in the first place, which is the reason or one of the reasons that I generally tend to give my players their head because they are super smart and super good at engaging with the setting. And if they are bored, they generally can let me know that in not quite those terms, but there's, there, there are signs of, of rustling and dissatisfaction and it only takes a very little of, of me putting, you know, the, the gas pedal down and saying, well, it's, it's been about five hours while you guys have been planning it. And now it's midnight. Were you planning to uh, move tonight or were you planning to let the monsters continue to raven for another 24 hours? And then they will, oh yeah, we should probably go out tonight. We have most of a plan. Let's get it done. Or they'll say, you know what? Probably people who live near the graveyards have priced that into their health insurance. We're going to stick here and plan some more. And then they'll do that. And it just really depends, you know, have they, do they feel like they've gotten the sort of intellectual juice out of this uh, scenario that they want? And since I write my scenarios to provide precisely that, it's a little, I think, uh, mean of me to say, well, I know I wrote an intellectually challenging scenario, but what you have to do is respond to it now and in the moment and move, 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 because that sort of violates the implied contract of playing in a game by me as opposed to a game by a different GM. Right. And uh, your mention of uh, board rustling, I think, is is always the thing to look for uh, in any GMing situation when you're asking yourself, am I watching fun happen? Mm -hmm. And so if you see that, uh, obviously you're, you're watching unfun happen, at least for some of the people involved. I mean, uh, you, you can rule, for example, that if there are three phones out that are not engaged in research, those that might be a sign, right? Because yes. now board wrestling is it's much quieter than it used to be. Yes, wrestling is more uh, covert than it than it used to be. Mm -hmm. You have to look for it harder. Um, and but there are other signs that you can look for to determine whether the planning is part of the play experience or it's an impediment to the play experience. Uh, one of which is: Are we learning more about the characters from the way that they plan with each other? And that was a big feature of. Uh, the long planning session that I started off talking about because 
it's a new set of characters in this second phase of the the long uh, saga, and we're just discovering who they are and where they stand, and uh, the uh, plan they were working on in particular had a moral dimension in terms of, you know, how many innocent or perhaps are they innocent civilians uh, are we willing to endanger in order to uh, fulfill this uh, mission and uh, deal with the Beast of Gebudan? And so you learned uh, a different thing about Chris's character and Rachel's character and, and Justin's character. And, and so we're getting to know the uh, people as they uh, plan. So it's not just a logistical exercise, but there's also an element of debate as to, you know, if we order an artillery strike against the village, we're risking this problem. But if we don't do that, then there's more danger for our troops. So they're weighing contrasting values rather than just, well, what's the easiest way to go in and attack the werewolf and get out? And, uh, you know, it's, there's something emotionally resonant about uh, the argument. Another thing to look for is, has the group started to go in circles? Uh, because if once, I, I think the real problem with, with planning is that if you reach a deadlock, that uh, that then becomes frustrating for all concerned. And I think that's when the GM uh, can kind of subtly step in in order to kind of redirect the planning in a more productive uh, direction. And I, maybe resolving deadlocks is is a, a segment all unto itself, but there are quickly some things that you can do. Um, one way, for example, is often the players will enumerate the default plan that you thought that they would do and that you have set up to be a perfectly reasonable plan with a good chance of success, and then they'll either reject it completely for some weird reason, uh, or they'll just forget about it. <laughs> and so, you know, an hour into the planning, you know, plan A has been tabled for for no good reason so what you can do then is remind them of what they've discussed so far and and as you encapsulate that you can suddenly make plan a seem kind of like it's plan a or something like that right what i what i sometimes do is say it seems to me that you're either going to sensibly scout and then uh, move in on their defenses or you're going to do this crazy thing with the fuel air explosive but you need to tell me which it is because I have to work out the opposition depending. And then they're like, oh, right. Yeah, we have two plans, don't we? And one of them, man, that sounded crazy when he put it that way because he said <laughs> the word crazy right in it. And you don't have to necessarily put your, your thumb on the scale even to that extent because a lot of times the first plan they came up with or the or which, which one of the plans will actually seem both more productive of fun and more productive of the character moment. And so that will be the one that, oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Obviously this was a great, you know, detour to talk about fuel air explosives, but the scouting and kidnapping part, that's really where our strengths lie. Let's go do that. And, they, and they'll just sort of move into it. And much later they'll remember, oh, right. We've done all the groundwork for a fuel air explosive. Let's build one in a tearing hurry at substantial minuses and set it off to cover our escape. And then everyone has fun. Right. And another uh, difficulty that you can have with, with planning uh, when it deadlocks is that the group has gone into its huddle before they've gathered enough information and that a lot of the planning is actually just sort of unfounded speculation about what might or might not be going on. Now, that's actually a big part of real planning. Yeah. <laughs> that you are, are unaware of, uh, you, you know, you're missing crucial That's facts. part of the actual war genre. Exactly. But in this adventure, you may have expected them to uh, do some research and, and know that, uh, 
you know, that, that there is a hill over there that has a vantage over the, the scene or that the way that you kill this particular creature is with uh, a uh, henbane extraction. Um, and so you can just sort of remind them, uh, it's like, well, maybe you skipped the investigative phase a bit and, and this will be clearer if you gather uh, more information. Another challenge uh, of planning, though, is, is, as you suggested earlier, is of pacing. And so uh, while the players are, even while they're productively engaged with one another, that is time when the uh, pacing of the session is in their hands and not in yours. And if they're cool with that, that's one thing. But if they are then going to, uh, you know, regret all the time they spent planning and then the session ends, uh, you might want to um, hurry them along a bit. Um, and also, uh, even if they really enjoy the three-hour planning session, if you thought you had enough plot line for four hours of play and they've taken up, you know, two hours, that means that you're, you know, by the time you end, stuff may be happening, but you may then the next session have to come up with some more plot line in order for it to have a satisfying amount of, of narrative. Generally, I try to have a session end a story rather than, you know, go two hours in end that particular episode and then restart another episode. That seems like that that is a beautiful dream, but I find trying to force that is almost always counterproductive because it gives me something to think about that is not the experience of lived play at the table. If I find that I can end the session with a fight or something that is the equivalent of a fight, a big magical ritual is often the equivalent of a fight in my games. Then I feel like that's good enough. We, we ended on a high note and worrying that the story did not come to a, a satisfying close or the, or the, or the session narratively didn't is, is almost a, a bridge too far. And the trying to get both the, uh, the sort of the adrenaline based pacing in the game and the narrative pacing to match up. You, you can concentrate on that and then you wind up missing player cues or you missing opportunities to insert more fun and respond more creatively than you would have otherwise. So yeah, great if you can do it, but it's hard to do. For me, the issue comes more when after the big ritual that is the climax of the event, then there's only another, as far as you could tell, another hour's worth of story, but another session is starting. And so you now have to find a way to add material to it to, to make it seem satisfying. And so that can be a a, uh, a question you have in your mind. As right. You're, you're saying that if playing. the next session opens on Act Five, then you're yes. then you're weak. Right. Yeah. That that's when you that's when you start Act One of the next session during Act Five and uh, get them planning again. Uh, yeah. yeah, and that's something I, aesthetically I, I prefer to avoid if I can. But yeah. as you suggest, you know, as a GM, often you have to go with the. The, the thing that works, not the uh, ideal thing. And I, and I enjoyed the overlapping stories because it makes the world seem richer, right? If, if you, if, you know, you actually have, you know, the next story beginning while the first story is still ending, that makes the world feel more real and lived in. It lets the players have a sense that they can push on parts of it and it'll push back. Maybe not entertainingly. Well, certainly entertainingly, but maybe <laughs> not, um, uh, helpfully to them. Um, and so they feel like they're, more present in a world than a sort of a comic book universe where, well, it's a good thing. The mirror master was just put away. Oh my goodness. Heat wave just showed up. What, what are the odds? You know, that kind of feeling of the sort of serial adventure story. I feel it can be fun, but I think that's really, it should be genre driven. And in the games that I try to run that are more, more about either establishing a common mood of horror or a common intellectual environment to explore, 
Um, I prefer to, I prefer to overlap the stories anyway, so I don't see that as a downside. And a, a final risk of, of a lot of planning that uh, pushes you further along than you thought is if, if there's three hour planning session uh, and then uh, something happens and then they break and uh, you know that, but, but basically they're still on the brink of executing the plan on week two that they developed in week one. Well, if your players are like mine, yeah. it's not the same group of people every week. And so a new player who was absent the previous week shows up and wants to relitigate the entire plan. And it's like, nope. It's, it's beautiful <laughs> that you have to add an extra player to get players wanting to relitigate their plan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get a thing where they've spent a week, you know, maybe not all week, but they've spent part of the week thinking about the plan and everyone has come back with just one tweak. They're like, no, 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 no. I, I think if we get a metal cart, the fuel air explosive plan could work. Or have, have anyone thought of doing this all alchemically from the safety of our fortress? Or, you know, everyone's got a thing and then everyone's version of the plan has to be retalked out, which is, again, why I prefer to end things after the fight as opposed to leading up to it. But you can't always do that. And that's why really my biggest priority, I mean, not my biggest priority, but my pacingest priority during the session is... First, to make sure that the planning is fun for the players, but second of all, to make sure that it ends an hour before the session ends so that we can have some satisfying action that at the very least provides them more information so that the replanning process isn't just sterile mastication of the scenery. And uh, speaking of sterile mastication, before we uh, I'd have to deal with this scenery, I think it's time to head to a commercial and see what scenery awaits on the other side. Kids, want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group? Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One to One has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One to One book, Cthulhu Confidential, combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos. Complete with three dauntless investigators, each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Crusading journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman. And Robin's hard-boiled private eye Dex Raymond. Presenting three terrifying settings. Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one -one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one -one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun. It's time to hook a pair of handcuffs to one belt loop and clip our police department-issued sidearm to the uh, other side of our belt because... We're once more looking at the crime blotter. This time we're doing so at behest of Patreon backer Tenant Reed, who wants to know about the Black Dahlia case. Uh, Ken, this is uh, of American crime stories. This is one that has sort of an an outsized 
uh, Mythic Resonance, and we'll get into that. I think that will probably be most of our segment. Uh, so on January 15th, 1947, in Los Angeles, uh, the body of a young woman named Elizabeth Short uh, was found uh, hideously mutilated. Uh, if you want to know the exact nature of the mutilations, you can look them up online. Yes, and do it with images off, I yes. would suggest. Uh, let's just say that the extent of them was... But so they were hideous. That, let's yes, leave it at that. They could not be described uh, in the newspapers fully. Um, but uh, the sensationalistic L.A. press of the time, uh, as was its wont, gave a nickname uh, to the case and to the victim, uh, the Black Dahlia. And so this nickname may have come from a 1946 film called The uh, Blue Dahlia, which they just slightly mixed up in order to uh, tag it on there. But the, the phrase Black Dahlia, I think, has a lot to do with why this is remembered. And also the fact that it is a, a serial style murder with... As far as we can tell, or maybe or maybe not, uh, no other connected killings, I think, is part of uh, why this uh, case is, re- is really resonant. And as is often the case of early reporting, a lot that was initially established about the story and is still in the mythic version turns out not to have been true. So the I think the story of Elizabeth Short that came out was essentially that she uh, was a young woman who was lured uh, to L.A., got caught up in its uh, dark underbelly, uh, was uh, working as a prostitute, and then was destroyed by Los Angeles. Well, it turns out she had only recently arrived in Los Angeles. That wasn't true. And the idea that she was a sex worker was confusion with someone else, also named Elizabeth Shorter, with a similar name. And so even the everything about her that is, uh, I think, remembered now uh, a lot of it is false. Yes, she was certainly no more or less of a good time girl than any number of other people in Los Angeles in 1947, and certainly did not have the kind of lurid lifestyle that uh, the Hearst Papers especially enjoyed imputing to her. And so this uh, has then gone on to be reflected in a whole bunch of other media. We'll get to that later. But can do you think the sort of mythic resonance of this case is entirely because of the way that the media spun it, or or was there something else about post-war Los Angeles and uh, the murder of this young girl that um, made this a case that we still remember and talk about today. There's, of course, the the fact that it's unsolved. Uh, that always makes a case bigger. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a big part of it. Um, also, it, it really, I mean, even for 1947, even for murders, it was extraordinarily brutal and awful. And I think that sort of level of ferocity in the killing created a greater, I don't know, a momentum for the case. Also, of course, she was a young, attractive woman who was the victim. Uh, she was white, which certainly never hurts for getting people's sympathy in the American mass media then or now. So there's, there's a lot of sort of, if you were trying to design a sort of iconic killing for a movie or for a book or for a role-playing game, you would wind up pretty much with the Black Dahlia killing and it might not be because you were thinking of the Black Dahlia killing. It just has those qualities that, you know, if you're a really lazy writer for, you know, CSI, you would put into the killing just to make sure that people stay tuned through the commercial. Yeah, it really is like a homegrown American Jack the Ripper murder. Except with, uh, with only the, one victim. With only one victim, but with the same level of um, misogynistic uh, rage directed at the at the victim in the way that the the uh, body was uh, disfigured. And there were letters to the newspaper, just like there were in the Ripper case. Uh, one of them calling themselves the Black Dahlia Avenger, which implies that they had at least read the papers and decided 
to uh, you know name themselves after it. Right, and in the years since, another problem that the police had with this that they often have in high-profile cases is not that no one comes forward, but that all sorts of people come yes. forward to confess to the murder. They Something had like a, 50 people have confessed. Yes, and and like any high-profile uh, killing, there is a whole list of uh, potential suspects that uh, people have written about. And the I guess the most famous, very unlikely, it turns out, <laughs> perpetrator is uh, George Hodel, who is a, uh, a doctor who lived in Los Angeles and had all sorts of... Uh, uh, fancy pals in Hollywood and art world connections. Including to Vincent Price. To, to Vincent Price and Edward G. Robinson and to Marcel Duchamp. Uh, and so that you, if you want to believe that he did it, you can uh, imagine that Duchamp's uh, last art installation is a comment on the Black Dahlia case. The problem with that is that uh, George Hodel's accuser is uh, his son, Steve Hodel, a former uh, LAPD officer. And he not only concluded that uh, Hodel had committed the Black Daily murder, but also was the Zodiac killer and <laughs> had uh, the, the Jigsaw killer and had committed the lipstick murders, for for which we have a perfectly good suspect who spent his whole life in prison for. <laughs> now, there was some... I mean, Modulo perfectly good, given that he was arrested by the 1946-era Chicago Police Department. Well, so there is that. He may, have, he may have just had no stable address and been seen near the building. Um, uh, my... My my police department uh, and Los Angeles's police department, just like Chicago and Los Angeles, I think maintained a good natured rivalry as to who many people, how many people they could falsely imprison for murders at one time or another. Right. So I suppose uh, you know, given that. That said, uh, I don't think that the lipstick killer and the black dahlia killer have anything to do with each other to begin with, because they were many many miles apart and had different mo's. Right. And I, I guess the, the similarity is there's a note that was left on, on one of the scenes that uh, matched the note. But the note in the Dahlia case is, like, not necessarily from the perpetrator. And so so do we want to move on to its role in sort of fiction and, and mythology? Or I mean, I, I would recommend if you want a sort of a, a really fast look at it, the, uh, the, the comic artist Rick Geary does a series of true crime comic books that I very much recommend. And uh, he has just done a Black Dahlia one, which I recommend reading. So if you want a, a super short, but super sort of good overview of the case, uh, check out uh, Rick Geary's uh, Black Dahlia book, because they are quite good. James O'Reilly, of course, has a Black Dahlia book. Yes, has a much book. longer Black Dahlia book. Because it is, the murder of uh, Elizabeth Short is very similar to that of his mother, which was also not solved. And uh, quite naturally has preyed on him and made him the James Elroy he is today that we know and love. Right. And so not only uh, that novel, but his memoir about uh, his mother's murder and, and what it did to him and the connections that he draws are both uh, well worth reading. Um, my, I think probably the best uh, literature about the case, though, would be John Gregory Dunn's True Confessions, uh, which deals with a similar idea of putting that at the heart of uh, L.A.'s rich a corruption scene, uh, but does uh, so in a uh, less lurid, uh, more controlled manner. Uh, Elroy becomes more controlled later, and then yes. it becomes uncontrolled again. Uh, there's also a movie uh, based on that with uh, Duvall and De Niro, which is also good, but the novel is really, really great. Right. There is a theory that uh, in the course of her peregrinations around Los Angeles, she'd wound up on the wrong side of Johnny Stampanato or one of the other uh, LA mobsters and had wound up being killed. Although again, her death was not mobster style. It was sort of 
crazy person style. And although I don't think anyone would bear a lot of testimony to Stompanato's sanity, when he murdered people, he murdered them differently than that. But that's another possibility, and and it's another way to pull her story into the larger seedy underbelly of of Los Angeles. And, of course, anytime you have a a killing where there's gross indignity done to the corpse, you can then overlay occult ideas onto that. And so if you want to fictionalize uh, the Black Dahlia or a version of that, uh, there's all sorts of uh, uh, ways to connect the gruesomeness of it to the idea of a ritual uh, killing. In fact, uh, I believe one of the newspapers at the time called the killing a werewolf killing because of the grotesqueness of it. And so right there, you know, you have a, a contemporary piece of evidence that there is a supernatural hand involved or claw, I guess, technically paw involved in uh, the murder. And you can spin out from that as much as you want. There was a video game about it for some reason um, that had Nazis somehow. Uh, I, I think it may have just been on the principle that Nazis make everything sell better, but, uh, they put Nazis into the Black Dahlia killing. So if you hunt down a copy of the video game, the Black Dahlia, you can find out why anyone would necessarily think that the Nazi occult has anything to do with this. I think probably you just needed somebody to shoot. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think werewolves or mobsters are perfectly good to shoot, but sure. Let's shoot Nazis too. Yeah. It's 1947. Yeah, there's still a few left over. Yeah, you know, one or two. Of, you know, it's a cleaning exercise. Uh, well, whenever we're drifting onto that uh, the subject of Nazis, we're uh, probably drifting off topic and therefore into our next segment. What happens when demons lodge in your memories? Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagaln. Ask for Askfagaln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Ryan Leibarger. Scott Herring. Timothy Corum. Todd McGowan. And Tony Kemp. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin, 
backer Padraig Griffin asks Ken and Robin, how plausible is it in this age of camera phones, CCTV, and viral video to have whole hidden societies of wizards, aliens, or vampires living amidst modern, urbanized, and unsuspecting humanity? Robin, how plausible? Would you say very plausible or somewhat plausible? Well, um, no more implausible than any of those things. Ah. And, and I think what Patrick really wants us to tackle is how do we make it more plausible? How do we make it seem plausible? Seem plausible. And of course, he's used the correct term plausible rather than realistic. Right. And so let's start to spitball ways that our weird Wayne Scott worlds or our secret society worlds are... Uh, uh, you know, world within world, how those actually uh, interact with uh, modern surveillance and, and pervasive uh, technology, as he suggests. And so the easiest way to do that is to posit that a society that maintains that level of secrecy and still exists enough to do a bunch of interesting things all the time in your game is inherently powerful, or at least part of it has enough influence in order to arrange the security state in a way that suits them. So the first way to tackle this is, well, the vampires are in charge of the NSA and they keep track of all the CCTV stuff, or there's some way that they make sure that uh, no more about this uh, gets out uh, than they want to get out. And so uh, if, uh, you know, there's surveillance footage of, of an alien, uh, you know, creeping over p past a, a gas station in the distance, well, Sure, go ahead, upload that to YouTube, but, you know, there will be debunkers on that who will uh, get a hold of Google and make sure that the slightly altered version of that footage uh, is up there instead. And, of course, the slightly altered version, you can see that there's the line where the rubber mask is. And, oh, that's obviously a guy, uh, you know, just walking in a weird fashion. You don't even really have to posit this information because right now I'm morally certain you go on Google and you say hidden, you know, or YouTube, you go hidden wizard and it'll show you lots of video of hidden wizards or aliens or vampires because you can fake things super easily now, you know, Photoshop and all the rest of those lovely things are, are a nickel apparently. And everyone younger than me can use them easily. So the, the world is full of, of, of wizards and ghosts and, uh, George W. Bush showing up and, and doing wacky things on video that don't have any connection to the real world. So why not the real wizards and the real ghosts? Right. Uh, the ghosts uh, may have to, you know, go to some trouble to create some fake smokescreen things for most of the real events. But for, you know, there's certainly lots of UFO footage on, on YouTube that you can find now. And, uh, you know, there, it may be a matter of, of belief. We're seeing in other things uh, going on in the world today that uh, some people seem to think that the way to... Uh, uh, disguise your uh, conspiratorial actions is to do them brazenly in plain sight. Yes. And then making manifest that which is hidden. Yes. Uh, if you don't want to uh, believe that uh, there are vampires, of course you dismiss all of the uh, information about vampires so that, uh, you know, your vampire secret society, you know that people don't really want everything fully out in the open. And as long as there's enough doubt for people to hang their uh, thoughts on, and, uh, you know, there's probably some level of penalty if someone keeps getting caught on uh, video phone footage. Then, you know, you call the, the grand conclave of, of the wizards or the bloodsuckers or whatever. And you go, well, look, you're rationed. It's okay to be spotted in blurry footage like every three years. But stop going on TMZ. Yes. It's just unseemly. Yeah, that's, that's not cool. 
And, uh, you know, now we're going to have to have a full-fledged cover story because it takes a lot for something to surface out of the crazy world. And in whatever, whether there's aliens, whether there's wizards, whether we're talking vampires, whatever those are, we know whoever it is employs Alex Jones. Yeah. Well, you know, who wouldn't? Yes. And uh, as opposed to, you know, his actual employer in in this world. The American people, Robin. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's who employs him. Yeah, right. Um, And so uh, I guess that is part of a, you know, there's a a disinformation campaign uh, that causes people to disregard the evidence of their senses. I want to move move back a little bit also because we don't even have to posit the vampires running the NSA. We just have to posit that the vampires or whoever go into the very first camera phones. It's all basically the same technology. Now they're all using the same patents. They just put a weird little winkle into the, um, uh, into the software because it's all computers that just rewrites the image as it's filmed. And so you like, I saw a vampire. And then you look at it later. It's like, that just looks like a guy in cheesy makeup. And also he showed up on camera, which he shouldn't do if he's a vampire. So you just have to have, one magic spell cast by the wizards or one piece of alien tech from Roswell that went into the uh, microchip movement, which we all know is how they got it. Speaking of Alex Jones or one, you know, vampire who hypnotized a guy at Foxconn when he was building everybody's camera phone that, yep, the one freak of, uh, of, of, uh, software that makes these guys only show up on, uh, on, on video as normal looking things is the freak of software that got written in there. I mean, there's legacy code in all of this stuff. We know all about the internet of things, how your, your toasters and your microwaves are plotting against you. Why aren't they also working for the vampires? I think it's a lot simpler than having the vampires run the NSA, which involves a lot of paperwork and, and, and going out for meetings as opposed to just, they fixed it so that computerized video doesn't take them. And only like really sort of weirdo old school people who use silver nitrate film, take a picture and show no, Seriously, he didn't show up on that camera. And everyone's like, you showed up on my phone camera. What's wrong with you? Because you're using the old school film that actually demonstrates that vampires uh, don't exist. I also want to point out that of the three things uh, Patrick mentions, all of them might not show up on video. Wizards, of course, have seemings and glamours so they can alter how things look. Uh, aliens, we know from Lovecraft that the Mego vibrated a different frequency so they don't show up in video. They don't show up on, on, uh, emulsions and whatnot. You have to make a special emulsion and vampires classically don't show up on cameras or look like dead things, depending on which version of Stoker you believe. And so therefore, uh, all of those things are begin, uh, you know, ab initio from being at least hocusing with your video. So a video record that says, well, why doesn't this video surveillance of the alley show a bunch of wizard children going in and out of it? Um, because they're using seemings. That's just what wizards do. Right. And they can all give off a level of electrical interference and that can take care of uh, audio that it mm-hmm. can, uh, either just completely wipe, wipe your uh, audio track or it can uh, introduce little artifacts that make it seem fake uh, depending on, uh, you know, how, uh, sophisticated, you want your uh, secret society. Uh, also, the be. mic on those phones is not very great. So, you know, you get all kinds of noise and clutter, whether you're trying to film a ghost or not. Right. The, the real threat to secret societies is not technology, but them being player characters. Right. <laughs> because as, as soon as you make the aliens or vampires or uh, werewolves or what have you, 
player character protagonists, they're going to stop being careful and they're going to, they're going to be the ones who bust everything uh, wide open. Uh, and uh, it's not a problem you have if they're working at the other way. If you're the uh, humans trying to track down the conspiracy, of course, that's just another uh, layer of static that they put in your way. But, uh, you know, any group of four to six players, one of them is going to go, oh, to heck with secrecy. I'm going up to the top of the Empire State Building and I'm going to set off my lightning or summon a, a spacecraft or uh, right. eat somebody in uh, clear uh, light of uh, nighttime. Uh, I'm going to go kidnap Chris Evans and make my own Captain America movie. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but that that's a whole other question that we're not being asked about and therefore don't have to solve. Thank goodness. Um, yeah, I, I think that the, the way that that is theoretically stopped is by the, you know, higher ups of the secret societies preventing that kind of behavior because one assumes that there are going to be uh, morally bankrupt wizards, aliens, and vampires who go out and enjoy uh, panicking the the norms and that that is what the secret society is for, which means that there has to be a credible threat that keeps these guys operating in secret. And whether the credible threat is to their bank balance, um, because if everyone knows magic is possible, suddenly they don't have a monopoly on it or to the fact that, yeah, when humanity gets sort of all up in arms, like in vampire, it will, you know, stake you out and there's just going to be a whole bunch of Van Helsing's running around uh, only this time with awesome charcoal bullets. Like yep. in ultraviolet. And again, that makes sense until you make it a player character. Yes. And they go, I don't care. They're going right. to kill me with lightning. I don't care. They're going to strip my bank account. I don't care. And so, of course, the player character, you're, you're stuck with the, uh, the question of, okay, now are we doing the, uh, storyline where the, the lid is blown off or does this character have to leave play? Because they've uh, broken because they've the been blown up. Yes, <laughs> in a mysterious gas main explosion. Exactly, or like yes. that um, uh, the Ukrainian ammo dump that went off. I mean, that's what all the viral explosion videos are, right? Whenever you see, you know, the Mexican fireworks factory or Ukrainian ammo dump or whatever, all the viral explosion videos are actually someone being executed by the higher ups of the wizards for violating the the, the sanctum. Right. So uh, the the answer then, in short, is. Uh, They've uh, messed with the uh, algorithm in your iPhone, and there's lots of ammo dumps. Right. <laughs> always there, There's always a convenient ammo dump where you didn't expect. Exactly. Uh, well, before we get blown up, it's time to uh, flee to our next and final segment. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. The gorgeous new hardback edition ships to a store shelf near you in December. Featuring full-color paintings by Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales by contributors such as... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready. Ready for you! Speaking of uh, mysterious UFOs and aliens that do not want to be identified, there's one place where aliens are always happy to be identified, and that's in the cozy confines of the Liptony Hut. Uh, so 
Wave hello to the uh, happy gray alien over in the corner. I believe he's making some herbal tea for himself. And the uh, alien big cat is into the catnip. He's rolling around. But we have a, a different uh, topic to deal with uh, this time in the uh, ever-mysterious Liptony hut. And that is a, a recent incident in which sovereign Moorish citizens uh, seem to be uh, messing uh, with the um, mounds in Moundville, Ohio. Uh, not Moundsville, Ohio, as I aim Moundsville, Alabama. Moundsville, Alabama. Yeah. Okay. Different different place. Different mound. Okay. Yeah. So, hence my confusion. Yeah. Well, that's that's how they get you. Ex- exactly. Okay. So, on, on February 1st, the uh, people were digging into the mounds in Alabama, which explains why the newspaper story is from Tuscaloosa. Um, <laughs> suddenly. Suddenly, it all pops into place. Um, and so, uh, two people with turbans show up on February 1st, uh, start digging into one of the mounds. They, uh, get a hole dug, uh, two and a half feet deep, more than a, it says two and a half feet deep and more than one foot deep. I'm going to assume two and a half feet wide or one foot deep, but either way. The larger point is it's about a three foot hole. Envision a hole, people. Envision a hole. It, it's, it's radio. It's theater of the mind. Right. And because this is an archaeological site, these people were apprehended. Uh, one of them is a 19-year-old uh, uh, guy, and there's a, a woman with him. They were both wearing turbans. Like you do. Like, like you do, because it uh, turns out that they were members of the Moorish Sovereign Citizen Movement. And, uh, Ken, this is where uh, you come in and helping us to uh, figure out what the Moorish Sovereign Citizen Movement, first of all, is. And then, once we've explored that, we'll figure out uh, why they were really trying to dig up a bit of yig. Because, of course... Uh, they said they wanted to put their feet in the earth, but that seems like uh, they were only scratching the surface because there's all sorts of places you can dig a hole and put your feet in the earth. There had to be more to it than that. Right. So the, the story of uh, basically there's two weird movements that coalesce. Uh, one is the Moorish Science Temple, and then uh, many years after that gets going, an offshoot intermingles with the sovereign citizen movement. So why don't you start off by telling us about the Moorish Science Temple? All right. The Moorish Science Temple began, as all great things do in America, with a fellow known as uh, Prophet Noble Drew Ali, who was born uh, Timothy Drew, but rapidly discovered that his name and his hometown of Newark, uh, New Jersey, were both inadequate and changed them by moving to Chicago and set and setting up the Moorish Science Temple of America, which had a lot of overlap with the early Nation of Islam, uh, much much of which wound up sort of uh, absorbing it after the death of Noble Drew Ali in 1929. Um, the uh, there was sort of a ongoing brouhaha between them and the Nation of Islam, but at its basis, he believed that at the beginning of of everything, there was one continent, and that continent was called Amixem. It was originally inhabited entirely by Moors, uh, which uh, Noble Drew Ali uh, believed were black people. But it's important you don't call them black people because all other names for Moors are wrong and given by the white man to separate and segregate people. So it's important you know that they're Moors. But anyway, Amixem is broken apart by a vast earthquake, which creates all the other continents. Amixem becomes... Uh, America in its white people name and the Moors still live there. And when the white people get there, the Moors generously allow the white people to settle there and live in America. And now 
Drew Ali did this as a way of sort of co-equating African-Americans with uh, whites and with uh, even sort of pre-dating American Indians in the same way that the theosophists said, well, our religion goes back to before uh, Christianity because we're older than Hinduism, which is the next best thing. And so you have a similar sort of an effect going on with the noble Drew Ali. And uh, uh, the the Moors would add Ali and Day and Bay and El to their names to indicate their Moorish descent. And uh, Drew Ali said that you should uphold and obey the law, respect the government, and uh, don't disrespect the American flag. Because, again, the goal is to create a sort of a national myth by which African-Americans can be the sort of in the, in the place of the white Americans, the people who are granting citizenship or granting favors to black Americans, that the argument being that the 13th and 14th amendments, which um, uh, sort of create a contractual right to vote are irrelevant because they already had the right to vote. They were the Moors. They ran everything. And uh, white people are just settling there in sufferance. And the Moorish temple believed that there was a category created called the free Moors, by a treaty with Morocco in 1789, uh, in which uh, free Moors could not be enslaved by Americans in Morocco. And that was because the Moor, the government of Morocco didn't want slave traders grabbing people off the coast of Morocco. They said, go farther south, where we've set up the nice depot for you. But uh, in the sort of legalistic ideology of the Moorish temple, this became evidence that the U.S. government recognized the existence of the Moors. So... This sort of ticks along until in the 80s and 90s, a remnant of the Moorish Science Temple gets tied up in the Al-Rukhan gang in Chicago and uses its sort of magical ideology as a symbology for the Al-Rukhans, hence their name. And that gets them drawn into the burgeoning at that time sovereign citizen movement, which is an entirely different thing made up by crazy white people. The notion being that the highest natural law is that of the county sheriff and everything else is contract law and contract law is superseded by natural law and that sovereign citizens by declaring themselves sovereign citizens can opt out of all laws above the purely local. And uh, there's a lot of other sort of weird uh, signifiers. Like if you're tried in a courtroom with a flag, with a fringe on it, you're in an admiralty court. And so that's illegal. And that has no jurisdiction over you. And there's all kinds of other sort of crazy mantras that you're supposed to recite. If you're a sovereign citizen, which of course gets you held in contempt of court. And um, uh, that's just the end of that story. But the overlap now between the Moorish science temple descendants and the sovereign citizen movement has created these Moorish sovereign citizens, which have their own sort of special groups. And uh, those are people who sort of declare themselves various nations, such as the Washita nation or the New Wabian nation or other sorts of nations. And one imagines that these guys in Moundville were part of one of the local nations that had decided that Moundville was ancient Moorish property. And therefore, if you buried your feet in it, you got reconnected with the Moorish, with the, Am with the Amexan land and, uh, were therefore, uh, made better, I suppose. But obviously, Yig. So that brings us to the Yig part. Uh, so why are they, uh, why are they risking messing with Yig? Do they know that Yig is protecting those, those, uh, those mounds, not only in Moundsville, but also in Moundville? I think that what's going on is that the belief that the protocontinent of Amexem 
must have been under the protection of Yig, or that Yig is their is their power animal, right? Be, or not their power animal. They're the sort of the 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 deity of the land, uh, because I mean, here you've got your your primordial race that lives in a giant supercontinent. And then there's a big earthquake and other lesser continents and races pop off of it. So obviously that's a sort of a, um, uh, what, uh, what Lovecraft would no doubt call a, a, um, a self-serving distortion of the Cthulhu mythos. And so whether rightly or wrongly, I think that the Moorish science, uh, Templars here have uncovered the notion that Yig is a powerful entity that dwells beneath North America. Um, obviously you got your Moundsville. You've already mentioned Moundsville. Uh, the, the whole serpent cults in, in uh, Mesoamerica back in the day. Uh, they've tumbled onto Yig as the, uh, as the guy that they need to get in touch with. And this is an attempt, I think, to sort of, um, maybe not sort of raise a cone of Yig power, but get Yig's attention and sort of bring Yig's eye to bear because the single eye on the dollar bill, the American great seal is a sign of the uh, tree of the original agreement uh, with the visiting European nations, because the, the eye of Providence indicates that there is a, a, um, a, a prior order that is looking down and, and, and taking care of everything. And if they've decided that the eye is actually the eye of Yig, since we've got an eye in a pyramid, that's not that far from a snake eye in a mound to uh, sort of say, Hey, let's wake up that eye and let's bring the Moorish science temple back up to its, its old MXM level of strength. Right. Thanks to the power of Yig. And due to the, the, the snake appearing on the, the don't tread on me flag, we can assume that Yig is anti-taxation. Right. And again, that might be another, that might be a way that they brought him on. If the Gadsden snake comes from the sovereign citizens movement and the eye comes from the Moorish temple, then they're like, Oh, look at that. Two great tastes. And it, it took both of these sort of weird, uh, fringe movements to discover the truth of Yig, like the blind guys holding the elephant. Only it was only two because it's a snake. Right. There's only two parts. So does that perhaps explain why the, more science, uh, one of its offshoots then grafted itself into sovereign citizens because they had to, uh, you know, get to the Gadsden snake and to the, uh, the whole, uh, you know, uh, rugged serpentine individualism thing. Right. Yeah. I think that that's, that's what it was is it began maybe as an infiltration and then became an, a genuine, uh, meeting of the minds in the sense that, uh, the, the sort of, um, uh, the, the, the weird, uh, British Israelite movement, which also believes that America is a weird promised land and is a big part of the, of the white nationalist, um, uh, militia, uh, sovereign citizen type people up there in the Northwest. <laughs> Once they get over the shock of being approached by, uh, Chicago Moors, uh, begin to say, Hey, these guys have got some good magic ideas, just like Lovecraft said. <laughs> and then they, um, uh, they, they bring it on. I, I can actually imagine that, that they're, Oh, look, but it says in Lovecraft that the wisdom of Cthulhu is held in the African people. Therefore, we have to talk to these guys. And, and the whole Murray science uh, movement, it seems very built to go off and to burrow into other weirdnesses. So there's another offshoot yeah. called the Nuwabian Nation, which becomes a, uh, a UFO cult. I mean, the, in fairness, the Nation of Islam began as a UFO cult, right? I mean... Uh, Elijah Muhammad saw a UFO that revealed to him the truth of the nature of uh, the ice people and the mud people and everything else. You don't normally see that. And that's not the first thing they, they lead with. It is, it is not, it is not on the front page of the literature anymore. I grant you that, but it's still big time UFOs. I believe that uh, the Reverend Farrakhan, uh, Mr. Minister Farrakhan has seen a UFO and will be right out there and tell you all about it. Well, although 
So will Jimmy Carter. So Yes, well, I mean, in fairness, when Jimmy Carter argues that he's a sovereign citizen, he has a little more going yeah. for him. <laughs> yeah, at least for a while there, he had executive <laughs> he, privilege. He literally has his own, uh, his own special part of the government in charge of making sure that people don't mess with Jimmy Carter, which is, um, uh, which is fine. Yes. Um, so have we uh, left any elliptonic gleanings behind, or have we successfully limned all of the details that this uh, sparse newspaper article uh, left out? Well, I mean, there is a uh, a number of cult compounds done by people like the Nuwabian nations and the Kemetists that basically build pyramids and put giant quasi-Egyptian pseudo-Moorish temples up, and in a lot of places in the South, in Georgia especially. So... We probably don't have the, the room to get into it right now, but the, uh, there is a lot of more going on with, uh, people building pyramids in, uh, the former mound building parts of this great land of ours. So Yig has got more than one string to his bow, is I guess what I'm saying here. Well, he'll, he'll have to, because if you're a snake, it's hard to shoot arrows. It is. Yeah. You've, you've got to multi string it first. That's the secret. Uh, well, I guess, uh, let's leave, uh, many of those tantalizing hints as teasers for a future segment. So uh, Patreon backers, if you want to know, uh, want us to follow any of these threads into deeper into the lifting hut, let us know and we'll do that. And uh, I guess without further ado, uh, let us go and uh, dig our own holes, but not in uh, archaeological sites. So uh, see you next week, folks. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Hobnob with such paragons of the secret world as... Alexander Zimmerman. Trung Boy. Andrew Jones. Ben Dilworth. And Chris Kelly. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.